See, can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay, well, welcome. I'm glad to see a good-sized group of people here to listen to this. My name is Peter Parker. I'm the lead CICS programmer on base payroll. Uh, my co-presenter is Steve Hunter, uh, lead Java programmer on base payroll. Uh, we both wear other hats, but that's, that's what we're about uh, related to this. Uh, our presentation today is entitled Service-Oriented Architecture for pay Payroll... Uh, Payroll personnel, so the payroll personnel system. Um, web services that inquire or update the EDB. I'm going to change the order of the slides just a bit. This illustrates what we're really doing. I, I want to find out how many people here are uh, programmers. Okay. Most people, that's good. This is a rather technical talk. Uh, how many people are CICS programmers? Not a soul. Okay. That's interesting. How many people are Java programmers? Quite a few. Okay. Well, the first half of this talk, it's going to be in two parts, and I'm going to go for about 20 minutes, and then Steve will do the Java part. I'm going to talk about CICS. So um, we'll try to present this in a way that's meaningful to people who don't really know much about mainframe CICS and that sort of thing. The picture, and I need to find the laser pointer, it's disappeared. What did I have Pardon me while I empty my pockets. There it is. Okay, well this will help us understand what we're really talking about and what's being done. Uh, over here is ZOS mainframe hosting CICS regions. There are... Uh, there's one CICS region for every instance of payroll that's running, so each campus has its own region. CICS is a uh, facility uh, in, in ZOS that allows you to communicate with primarily 3270 screens. So you have a, a fixed screen and you're entering data or looking at data that comes back. Uh, the, uh, we're talking about uh, new services to update the employee database, the EDB, and also inquire upon it using a different set of technologies. In today's world, um, anyone who is use, updating the EDB uh, with a screen is using a 3270 emulator. So they have a static screen. And what's going on is, all right, here's the user here, and there's their PC. They have a terminal emulator running on their PC, and they're communicating directly with the mainframe. That's what's going on. Uh, the facilities that are available when you're using a 3270-style terminal communications process uh, are very limited. I mean, you can brighten fields. You can uh, control where the cursor goes, uh, that sort of thing. But it's very limited compared to what people expect to do uh, nowadays because we're all familiar with web facilities when you go to a web page, uh, all kinds of things might be available there to help you to enter data. You've probably all done airline reservation online. A lot of nice things are there. A 3270 screen just can't do any of that. And so what this project is really about is re-engineering the presentation layer. And in, in, in solving this technical problem, we're using something that, well, how many people know what service-oriented architecture means? Most of you. That's good. So we are implementing a form of SOA, uh, and it 
it's all come together just beautifully. I hope you can appreciate how cool this is. From my perspective, I think from Steve's as well. So I said, well, in today's world, this PC is communicating with the mainframe. We're introducing this middle tier. And we're going to make it possible for the user here to run a browser, communicate with this web application server, and there is a Java application in development that sits here. And the result is that now we can update the EDB from a very nice screen. Drops that, a lot of drop downs, predictive drop downs, radio buttons, whatever you want. Uh, so we are in the midst of developing a, a new EDB, a new hire process uh, using this technology. So I hope that gives you enough context. Now, I was just at a presentation about how to communicate well just before I came here. And uh, I now realize that this is a very bad slide. Uh, but uh, I, I'm learning, so I'll get better at it. But I think we can use it. Um, well, first, let's do this. We're going to do two parts today. I'm covering CICS. And what that means is I'm talking about changes to uh, PPS that allows CICS to host a web service and communicate easily with uh, the middle tier, with a Java application. So there are new capabilities in CICS that make it possible to expose the underlying uh, infrastructure that PPS has as a web service. And I'll show you how. It turns out that in this case we have the perfect, it was set up, made to order to do this. The architecture of the existing system was made to order for us to do this. Okay, so two parts. All right. You how many people here know what a WSDL is? All right, so that's web service description language. It's a file. It's XML in general. And it is a, a, a living document that allows uh, any application that has the right facilities to make a call and consume a web service. It defines the inputs and outputs. So that's the first one. Uh, each web service, I'm, many of you must know this, probably all of you, a web service has to have a WSDL. And that's how you allow other applications to call the web service. Uh, we CICS hosted web services, the new facilities that are available, what we're implementing, and there are other possibilities, but we're implementing SOAP, so, uh, let's see, Simple Object Access Protocol, encoding, encoding XML over HTTP. Uh, of course, we will use SSL at all times in, in, the, in the application. Now, this last item, in order to uh, appreciate how this, how this works, what the conversation is between the mainframe and the Java app, you have to understand a little bit about PPS at a detail level. Uh, the PP, existing payroll system uh, has a data dictionary that's very well maintained and very powerful. Every column and every table in the employee database has a number. So there are processes that already exist that allow us to update data in, in the database 
by specifying just the number that belongs to that item and the data. There are programs that do that. And there are reasons why they're there, but I won't go into that. However, it's not just as simple as you might think. There are two kinds of data element numbers. One we can call scalar, and that's where it's simple. Data element number 105 is, who knows, employee name. One data element number, one piece of data. That's simple. But then there are lots and lots of data element numbers that represent repeating values. So for example, um, what we call GTN numbers, this is a GTN, yeah, gross to net. GTN means gross to net. These are essentially specifications for deductions from your paycheck. There is a single data element number associated with all of those. People have lots of them. So how are you going to update when you've got a bunch of things and one identifier? Well, there's a secondary key, which we call an occurrence key. So that's the repeating value. And so uh, uh, the GTN data element number is 6,000. And there's lots of them. So you have this occurrence key. And you wind up with a list of values associated with the number. OK. Another bad slide. Way too much on it. All right, as we were thinking about how to put this together and what we would really like to achieve uh, in the way of a new system, these design goals came to the top. So let me try to walk you through them. Uh, we needed to provide uh, authentication to end users in the way that they're, they currently do it. When you go in and log on to your CICS region, you enter your user ID and password. And then authorizations are given to you based on your identity because you've logged on. Well, we have to preserve that, so we have built a web service that allows a Java application of some kind or other to log on. Call a web service, pass a user ID and password, get a response back, yes, it's good, or no, it's not. So that's we, we've solved that problem. We've done that. Now, this one here, we want to reuse as much of the infrastructure as we possibly can. We have succeeded at that. Um, and beyond my, my, not my wildest dreams, but very, very, very well. We've had a lot of success. We want to reuse all the DB2 database access that's happening in CICS. We don't want to reinvent that on the Java side, and we don't want to do a lot of additional programming. So that's a goal. Uh, there's something called value range editing in PPS, and this is a facility where all, there are many CICS screens in the system today. Whenever you enter data into any one of the fields, one of the first things that happens is that it goes to the value range editor. So for example, if you enter uh, a code value, I can't think of a great example, but um, something as simple as uh, gender, male and female. Those are the only two allowed code values for that data element number. So uh, there's a program already in existence that you can pass the data element number to, the data that was entered, and receive back a response saying, yeah, that's valid. It's in the right range. It's OK. We want to reuse that. Don't, why, why redo it? But how do we do it from Java? Uh, there is a, something called the consistency edit process in the, in the existing update system. This amounts to 
you know, after you've entered all the data and you're ready to do an update uh, and you're sitting at your 3270, you press PF5, right? And at, before we can actually update the database, we have to know whether there are any inconsistencies in this all the data that's been entered. So there's a very elaborate consistency edit process already in place. We want to reuse it. Um, just a sidelight, PPS is, if you don't know the internals, it's a very table-driven system. Uh, it, when it was originally written, it was way ahead of its time in this regard. If you want to add a new piece of data to the database, uh, you can do that by simply adding information about that data in a series of tables that define it, and then there it is. Actually, we have to add a new column to your database, but not, not a lot more than that. So it's very table-driven. Um, and this, there are a couple of, and since you folks really aren't on the COBOL side, I won't go too far with this, ARSEN and uh, PPS Funk are part of the authorization process that happens when uh, a logged-on user is going to update the database. We need to retain that, so we have a web service that will do that as well. We also realize that this is a very important goal right here. Uh, we realized that we could make it possible to write uh, a web application, the presentation layer, without any SQL in it. That's not always an easy matter, but given the existing infrastructure, it became clear we could do it. There are good reasons to want to do that, and I'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. We also would like the web services that we create, and these are, by the way, COBOL programs running in CICS, to be um, not require much maintenance. So uh, we hit upon a strategy that allowed us to do that. And the strategy basically is, and I'll be talking about this uh, over and over again, we decided that we would go with the model where we, in XML, pass data back and forth between the web service and the Java app in data element and value pairs. That's all. So we're identifying data by data element number. Well, that means, as it turns out, that um, once the web service has been coded, you don't necessarily, probably don't have to change it at all if you add new data elements because of the uh, table-driven nature of the application. You can define numerous new data elements, and they will show up in uh, the data that's going back and forth between the Java app and uh, NCICS. The last item has to do with point-to-point -point security. Let's see, how many folks have a good idea or under understand uh, what uh, client authorization is in an SSL context? Okay. Well, I'll talk about, try to, try to make that clear going forward. Um, I mean, we know what uh, authentication is. It's identifying who it is you're, you know, who you're dealing with, what server. Um, and it is, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this. All right. So what do we got here? Okay, so now, well, this is one of the things that we wanted to do, provide authentication uh, as we always have provide a logon capability. Uh, uh, 
In order to accomplish this, what we have to do is implement our web service in each one of the regions so that when a user logs onto that region, um, it's similar to what happens today. When you use a, a CICS screen, you log onto a particular region and you're in conversation with that region. We're duplicating that with a web service. Uh, and what happens in the web service is that if your logon is good, we create a little token and save that in storage in that region and store your user ID there. Now, from that point forward, when you're calling the web service, all you have to do is provide the token, and we can know, A, that you're logged on, and we can use the token to look up and see what your user ID is. Oh, now I've, I'm crazy about these uh, call-outs. You may not be. But this is just an example of what the XML looks like when the request is made. So a Java program would use things I don't understand that Steve uh, will elaborate on to create a request. And this is all, this part of the message is encapsulated in a SOAP uh, uh, message. Well, what's here? There's a user ID, that's mine, and a password. That's pretty much what goes in. That's all that goes in, right? And what happens? I hope you can read it. Oh, oh I, actually, I missed... Oh, that's right. In this case, we're getting the token back. This is how we get a token. So here's our response. The token comes back, and we have a zero return code. That means that uh, payPXP entered secret as a password. It was okay, so here's your, here's your token. Okay, now these are two major resources, two programs at a very high level that exist in the, uh, in the COBOL CICS infrastructure. So these programs you call, there's a very complicated process very often that takes place when you make a call to these. But they're there, and we're able to reuse them. Uh, PP, EDB for Employee Database, FET, meaning fetch, is one such service routine already in existence. And, of course, PPEDB update. We're using these in the web services. And we're able to, well, let's go on. Okay, here's an example of input to service number one, the first one we created. And this service, what it's supposed to do, you give the service an employee ID and a token to prove you're logged on, it's going to give you back all the data that's in the employee database that isn't initial. That is to say, that isn't zeros or spaces. So basically, this is all the data for the person. Well, the Java program would send this XML and get back a repeating series of XML blocks. In this example, let's see, the return code was from a service was zero. The, uh, for data element number one, with an occurrence key, remember that? So this is a repeating uh, item. This is an action, I think. Here's the value. Oh, and then there's ellipsis, there's a whole bunch more. Uh, one of our test employees on our test database has about 500 data elements that comes back when you do this. I'm only showing three here. Oh, here's an example. I'll say element 105 is the guy's name, and there's no occurrence key if you read XML. That's null. 
Oh, and here's a, a gross to net number, data element 6,000. There's the occurrence key. There's a value. So very simple interface. You just give me the employee ID, prove you're logged on, you get back all the data. Okay, we're uh, still in development on service number six. This is uh, the service you use in order to update the EDB. Ultimately, PPEDB update is called to do the updates. Uh, a lot of different things happen in between, but here's the basic input to update element uh, 108. So if all I wanted to do was update element 108, which turns out to be gender, uh, I'm trying to make it male, well, all I have to do is provide my token, the employee ID, the date element number, and the data. This is the input then. Is it 20? Okay. Well, um, I'm going to cut this a little bit short because we're sharing the time here. So you can see, though, that what you get back then is a response saying, well, I got a return code zero. I updated gender to male. Uh, I spoke about uh, value range editing. Well, there is a, an existing facility in the system called, P, it's a program, PPVREDO, Value Range Edit Online. Uh, we have a web service that calls that. It gets a token, uh, a type of request, a data element number, and a value. In this example, I used the same data element number twice, and I want to check two different values for it, just as an example. That comes back. Oh, return code one, not zero. Something's wrong. Uh, they'll say oh, 11, the data element 1171, and I don't remember what it is. The value 22 is not okay. The return code is one. For 1171, a value of 15 is okay. So that, that's it. Value range editing for, for everything. UC Router is the traffic cop that receives all input from CICS screens in the existing system. It controls the whole process of doing an update, which turns out to be very elaborate. We're going to reuse it. And we were able to reuse it by making minimal changes to Router itself. Uh, and this is all working. These, I won't really, you can, if the, you can look at the presentation on your own at some point. Uh, these are just, and since you're not COBOL programmers, it probably doesn't matter. Minimal changes there. Uh, these are the two facilities that we use to do uh, arson checking. Arson is like a rule, rules that, that define what you can do. For example, there's always an arson rule that says you can't update your own employee data. So you're, if you're doing the update, you're employed by the university. We know who you are. You're logged on. You're not going to update your own, your own employee data. So that's an arson rule. Uh, this one it does another kind of authorization checking. There are web services that do both those things. So I know I'm running out of time. Let's see. 
Well, I'll just run over a little bit, and because this is a kind of a key point. Uh, when we were working through this, we realized that all the screen handlers, every CICS program that, that deals with a screen in the existing system, don't have any SQL in them. But the database is DB2. So architecturally, there's a complete separation between uh, data access and the presentation layer. Well, that's really great because it turns out that we can use that fact to do what we're doing. And so there's no SQL in the CICS screens. We don't need to have any SQL in the Java app. And so, and I really wanted to get this one in. What does it do? If there's no SQL in the Java app, then SQL injection is an impossibility. So I will, we're confident that that's true for this. You, you may be able to hack this system in other ways, but you can't use SQL injection. And then a subtle point here. Um, this design that we have where data is being sent back and forth and identified by data element number leads to greater reusability in the new app because there's a decoupling of the, the Java app. Uh, what did we say here? Well, the Java app doesn't know what the database is. All it knows is that it has to process data element numbers. So if we make some major changes, re-engineer the back end, maybe even replace it, much of this code can still be used. Okay, so these I'm going to skip past. Point-to-point -point security, I'll just take one minute, and there's some text missing here. Uh, so certificates. It, normally, when there's communication between the PC and the end user and, and the, the CICS region, we're using SSL, but there is no client certificate. So CICS doesn't know the identity of the machine that's making requests. Now we've introduced this middle tier here, and that presents a problem because that's a platform for putting bad stuff in there and stealing data. We can't run this system if we don't know the identity of this server where the Java app is running. So we accomplish that by having a client certificate on all these servers. If you're going to make a call to uh, web services here, you have to have a certificate that we have registered at our end, and we know who you are on your server. That's more about certificates. And that's it. Thank you.
So the question was, are we using synchronous, asynchronous, or queuing for the messages from the middle layer to the service? And the answer is we're using synchronous. We don't really need anything fancier than that for this application. So I'm Steve. I'm the Java programmer working on these PPS projects. We have um, a rewrite of EDB inquiry, which some of you may know. Uh, about a year ago, there was some security flaws identified in it. It was written in net.data, and it's been rewritten in Java, and it uses service PS001, which is the employee fetch service, to get the data that the user sees on the screen. So I wanted to talk about how we go from the XML that the service sends back, which as Peter described, is just a generic set of data value pairs, basically. And in some cases, it's a um, key pointing at a list of values if um, the data element number happens to have repeating values. So um, the basic um, focus of my talk is how we go from that SOAP message in the XML that's returned by the service to business domain objects, in this case an employee object. Because as we all know when we're writing Java we like to stick to an object-oriented approach, and it's always very nice to model the business problem that we're trying to solve using objects that mirror what we're dealing with, and in this case, it's an employee. Um, we've chosen to use Sun's Glassfish Metro as our web services stack. It's a fairly recent um, tool that Sun first released in 2007, and they're up to version 1.5, I believe, which was, was released in February. It's a pretty good implementation. They've taken things that other projects have done and taken the best of them and reworked other parts. So it actually, for the parts that it generates code, it generates pretty clean code, and it's pretty efficient when you use it. It has some other advantages, too, that don't really impact this project, but if you need to talk to .NET applications, it's WSIT compliant. So you'll be able to hook up your Java service or client to a .NET service. So the first step to go from the XML that is returned by the database, by this web service, is to um, use the facility. There's four steps. I'm sorry. The first step is to use the tool that comes with this Metro Glassfish to generate, auto-generate client codes that handle all the dirty work for you, manipulating the XML, getting a connection to the service, sending the um, request, and getting the response back. And then on top of that, we can add some binding customizations that allow us to control the names that are created by those auto-generated tools to make our Java code more maintainable. Um, above and beyond that, we need to add some Java programming concepts with an interface and an adapter pattern to map the data elements into our domain object. And finally, once we have that domain object, how do we go back to the data to the web service? How do we get back to data element numbers that we can send to the service? Because the service just on update is going to expect a series of XML elements that have a key, which is the date element number, and a value.
So step one, generating the client code. As I mentioned, Metro comes with some tools that allow you to generate code. Taking a WSDL as an input, you can generate a service and you can generate clients. Um, it's actually quite handy. You just point the tool at the WSDL and it'll find the schemas. It'll create data types for every input and output type needed by the WSDL and it'll create port type and service classes that you can invoke to use the service. Um, when it's going over the schemas, it will bind complex types to classes and the elements within those complex types to properties within the classes. So here's an example of the WSDL for that service one, which is the employee fetch. And you can see that there's a, it takes an input type, I mean it has one input, and you basically send it the employee ID. There's also the required user token that Peter was speaking of. I've omitted it here. There's basically two inputs to PS001, your authentication token and the employee ID of the person you want to fetch data for. And this is the WSDL for that service. When we run our WS import against that WSDL, we end up with a class called PS001in. And there's other classes that come to you. I'm just showing you the mapping from that WSDL element in complex type I just showed you to the, this class. There's another set of, there's about six or seven classes, depending on how complex your WSDL is that it will generate, that it needs in order to operate and consume the service. So we have a class for the input type, and it has a field that's just the required employee ID. So if you were just to use that import tool against the WSDL, you may end up, depending on how much control you have, um, in the creation of the WSDL, you may end up with names that you aren't really comfortable with working in Java code because you just you would never name something like this. So this name we could probably improve on. And fortunately, WS import supports binding customizations by supplying external files that are also XML. Um, there's actually two that you can use. One is the Java XML for web services and that allows you to control the names of the services and the port types. And then there's JAXB, which is Java XML for data binding and that's the one that gives you the fine level control over various things that it's going to generate. And basically it's an XML document as well and you use an XPath expression to find the complex type or element that you want to affect by your binding and you just say find this element and then I want it to give it this name. And so some of the typical customizations that we're using you can pick the package name that it's going to put the your generated um, classes in. You can affect the class names, method names, enumerations. If you have restriction types in your WSDL of enumeration, it will recognize that and you can 
it will turn it into a Java enumeration, which is a very convenient and handy thing to work with in Java code. And since these web services that we're dealing with are always sending back return codes, it becomes very easy to map the set of return codes that it can send into a set of enumerations, and it, it makes the code much easier to read and program. And you can also add documentation to these generated classes. If you were to naively go in after they were generated and try and Java doc them, the next time you have to run it, it's all going to be wiped out. So the binding system allows you to also add tags that will be inserted as Java doc into your generated classes. So here's an example of the binding file, the JAXB binding file we're using against service one. Basically, each binding operation you want becomes its own separate tag. And you here's the XPath expression. And you're just telling it to find in the schema, find complex type with name PS001 in. And we want to have the class that's going to be generated from that have the name PS001 input. And then we have some Javadoc that's going to be attached to that at the class level. And then we also say find the element that has name PS001 rec infant ID, and let's call that employee ID. And here's a field level Javadoc explaining what it is. And here's a little note for people who may be going ahead and using this and you're dealing with a WSDL that has more than one schema in it. And there's different ways you can have your type schemas associated with the WSDL. They can be external, or they can be incorporated within the WSDL. And you can have more than one. And these services actually have two, one for the input and one for the output, and they're embedded in the WSDL. And in order to get this JAXB stuff to work, you have to be able to tell it what schema you want. And this is the not very well documented syntax that you have to use in order to find the proper schema. So that took that took a few hours to find out how to do that. And it was a big win. Okay. So after we run the import tool again, passing in that binding file, we end up with a this is the same class that was generated before, but now it has our custom name and our custom property name. So when we put all this together, a client operation actually becomes very simple in the Java code. You notice there's no DOM manipulation. There's no um, socket programming at all. We just... Um, get the service, we create the input object that is going to be passed in, we set the employee ID, we set our authentication token, which we've gotten from a previous invocation of the um, authentication service, and then we just say get employee data passing in that object, and it's that simple. So this is a pretty good start, but as Peter mentioned, the return that's going to come back from that service is just an unbounded array of key value pairs, basically, or key list 
um, list of values. So what we really were, are striving to do is to have a domain object that we can program to within clients that need to use this service. So we want to have an employee that has named fields that are easy to refer to. Um, for example, name, last action, or a list of a, the employee's appointments. So the first half of getting to that point is to define an interface that lists out all the name fields that we want. And this is the part that's a little bit labor intensive, but with a good text editor and some macro writing, you can pretty, if, if you have a list of the fields that you want, you can pretty easily turn that into code. So we have a name field for each data element. For reference, we're appending the data element number to the end of the, the field, and that also gets carried over to the getters and setters for that field. Um, this becomes a reusable business object that any application that needs to deal with an employee can use. And the question then is, we have an interface, but that's just some hand-waving. How do we actually get some code that's going to respond to a message like get name 0105? The first part of that answer is to take, to use an adapter that basically mediates between the XML, the, the data element key value pairs, and turns that into an um, employee object. And here, we also define that as an interface so we can ease testing if we want to plug in a mock object. But this is a pretty simple interface. Just take that output from that service and give me back an employee. Again, more hand-waving. How do we make that work? We have, um, we create two maps, one for scalar values and another for repeating. The adapter takes that output payload, iterates across every single element. It notices when there's a non-null occurrence key, in which case it knows that that data element is a repeating. If, it's, if the occurrence key is null, then it knows it's scalar. And it basically just sticks whatever value has been returned for that data element into the map with the data element number as the key. If it's a repeating value, the data element number is pointing at a list of occurrence key values. And then the employee that it's going to return uses those maps to satisfy any of the getter requests. So for the ARM services, ARM forces services, element, which is a scalar value, you just have to call get on it with that data element number as a string. And if it happens to be a repeating data element, like the one Peter showed earlier, the gross to net 6011G, we find the list of occurrences for that base data element, which is 6000. And if that person does have at least one occurrence, we can try and find 011G. So in both these cases, since a service doesn't return data for initial values that people have never had the value stored except for what is stored when the record is created, clients have to be aware that this, both of these are possibly null. 
using the adapter also helps us with a couple special data sets that occur within the EDB, like leave accrual and also appointments and distributions. So leave accrual, you can have up to 13 sets in there. Each one has about 20 data elements in it. And the data element numbers increase from one set to the other. And it would really be a pain, and even in our employee object, if you had to pull, when you wanted to look at someone's leave accrual set for period three, to pull all those data elements one by one just as getters. So the adapter can use the properties of the way these, the way this data is stored to build up pre-built leave accruals or pre-built appointments for you. So the adapter is going to actually figure out which data elements contain all the person's appointments and distributions and just allow the client to get a list of them. So I have... Um, an example of what a leave, the leave accrual data looks like. You see this is one set of all the data elements that are in period one, and this is period two. And we can use the fact that from period one to period two, the bypass varies by six data elements. So basically, it's a shortcut that we can use in our adapter code to iterate across all this data and build up the, the objects that store this without having to have, you know, find this, find this, find this, find this. The code, you know, would be thousands of lines long without being able to use that property. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was how we go from, we have an employee object, we can refer to it in the, in our client code, but when we're in the update scenario, how do we go from our domain object that has these name fields back to what the update web service expects, which is date elements and values? So I call this application-level marshalling. Strictly speaking, in the web services context, marshalling means going from your Java data types to XML. And our framework classes that we've auto-generated are doing this for us. We don't have to worry about that. But we need to go from our domain object back to the input objects that those clients expect. And the clients basically, as I said, expect a data element number and a value or a list of values if it's a repeating. This is when we run the generation tool against the WSDL for the update. This is what we end up with. It's going to expect the input to that service is going to expect a list of data element numbers, the occurrence key if it's present, and then the value that is associated with that. And our our employee object doesn't doesn't have any of this. It just has like get name or get last action. It's actually pretty simple. Since we're already dealing with maps, we can just get the key sets for each of our two maps, the scalar and the repeating, and we iterate across them. We pull each stored value, and we know what we have the key, we have the value. We just use those methods that I showed on the last slide to set all the 
values that we have for that employee, and then we just invoke the service. So in conclusion, exposing the mainframe logic data is a great thing. It's going to rejuvenate PPS. It's going to make the user, the end user's lives much better, as Peter mentioned. Um, the current Java web service tools really ease development. That ability to generate these framework classes that handle all the dirty work for you just by running a command line is great. And to take that further to move the web service output payload into domain objects takes a little bit more programming that we can accomplish by using interfaces and an adapter strategy. So that's it. Any questions? So the question is, what are, how are we handling, handling transactions as a security? So we don't really need transactions. We're doing updates. Yeah, but, but the update, it either succeeds or it fails. It, there's no two-phase commit. We have that set of data. We send it. The service says, okay, accept it, or it says, no, it's not accepted. So send back a, a yeah, message. Exactly. Yes? So it, it seems to me like the, the biggest issue that you have is you need to have a nice mapping between your domain objects and the data structure, which, although it's stored in relation to the database, is really coming to this key value pair. So you don't get the opportunity to leverage all the great object relational mapping tools that are out there. So that seems to be both your current biggest problem, but also your longest term maintenance issue. And uh, I was just thinking. Okay. Thanks. Well, I, I guess I, to turn that into a question, this seems like the big pain. Do you concur? You know, is, this, is this where you have the least confidence It was a pain point, but I think now that we have this in place, as the. So the question was, what was the biggest pain point? Was the biggest pain point having the problem of having non-relational data, just basically key value pairs? And I'd say that it was somewhat of a pain to get it sorted out. But now that we have this in place, as on the service side, as Peter said, you can add and remove data elements without changing the WSDL at all. We just have to make minor updates to our 
employee interface and the implementation of that employee to add or remove data elements, and it does, it's not that fast changing, that I think it's going to be okay. Yes? The question is, is the PS001 web service available today? Um, it will be shortly when we release the web EDB inquiry. And it's available to other languages as well? Yeah, that's, Peter was mentioning that the service is consumed by Java, but it's a WSDL service, so anyone that can write to that can access it. And part of the intention of this whole movement towards the service-oriented architecture for PPS is that it'll be there available for anyone to use who needs it. That's kind of where my question goes. Could you have my kind of background? Maybe I missed it at the beginning of the talk. Is the business requirements framing why you went ahead with this project in the manner that you did? I mean, you've encapsulated it in some very careful ways. Business functionality is still in the CFC could you kind of describe what the going-in criterion or do you have multiple phases? Do you have phase two, phase three, 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 Yes? Um, two questions. Uh, do you provide a development and testing model for the 
The question is, is there a development um, system in order to test queries? And the answer is that in base PPS, we have um, development regions. I don't know for each campus what they're doing, if they have development regions available as well. You have to have a certain level of CICS installed as well. all of this as a PPS application is only going to talk to the mainframe over a two-way handshake and it's encrypted. So yes, it's a two-way, it's a two-way hand, as Peter mentioned, it's a two-way handshake. The client, the web application server has to authenticate to the mainframe via certificate as well. Proprietary handshake. No, it's SSL, two-way handshake. Yeah, the question was why, if um, someone else who wants to write against these services in something other than Java will have to do the whole mapping over again. And I guess that's true. 
I think it would make more sense to do that than to try and take the job and then turn that into a service that someone someone else could use. Any other questions? The update service, I'm sorry, I didn't... Yeah, what's your schedule for releasing the update service as well? Well, we're working on a new hire, on a new hire and we have um, a target date in October for a beta release. And there's some pilot... There's about five pilot campuses that are going to participate. Is that true? Or three? I don't remember. question is, is there any place where you can go to see the f- full schedule of release, planned releases for PPS web services? And I don't believe there is. We have a project site for the EDB update new hire. I don't know the URL off the top of my head, but you could email me and I could get that to you. But we don't have a schedule for all the services. <coughs> Any other questions? All right, then. Well, thanks a lot.